Before we get started today, I just want to remind you that we're in the middle of our annual raffle, and tickets are just $50, and it really helps support all the wonderful work that we're doing. If you buy a ticket today, I'll send you a personal thank you letter and a little gift. It's really easy. Just go to www.ndgraffle.com. That's ndgraffle.com. I'll be ever so grateful to you. Now let's get started. Tonight, we're talking about the Kabbalah of relationships. For the past seven years, every Wednesday night, I've been giving a class on relationships. For the first time, I'm going to fuse my two favorite topics into one, Kabbalah and relationships. And let's see what happens. I wrote up this sheet here. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go tonight. Feel free to be part of it. Let's talk and let's see what happens. Man, not woman. Man, by, by nature, is a selfish creature. Even in his relationships with others, he tends to focus primarily on himself or at most on his self-colored perception of his fellow. Love, 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 <laughs> is the endeavor to transcend this intrinsic selfishness and truly relate to one's fellow. To be sensitive and devoted to his or her needs as an individual distinct of oneself and one's own sake in the relationship. And yet, when the Torah speaks of the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself, it does so in the context of a man's duty to influence and even change the behavior and nature of his fellow man. In Leviticus 19, the Torah says the following, Do not hate your brother in your hearts. Repeatedly rebuke your fellow and do not attribute sin to him. Do not take revenge or harbor hatred towards your people and love your fellow as yourself. I am God. The commentaries explain that there are two possible reactions a person can have towards a fellow who has wronged him or whom he sees behaving in a morally deficient manner. Number one, he can despise him in his heart, regard him as a sinner, and perhaps even persecute him in his sins. Two, he can rebuke him in his effort to convince him of the folly of his ways and seek to influence him to change them. The path of love, says the Torah, is not to hate your brother in your heart, but to repeatedly rebuke him and seek to better him. Obviously, the desire to influence is consistent with the idea of love. No one would stand by as a loved one suffers, hunger, or is threatened by violence. <coughs> no less so if one sees someone he loves suffering from a spiritual malnutrition or moral blindness, he will make every effort to reach out to him, to enlighten him, to offer guidance and assistance. But this aspect of loving behavior carries an inherent paradox. On the one hand, the endeavor to influence and change implies a departure from self and concern with the well-being of the other. On the other hand, 
it implies a seemingly selfish view of the other, a rejection of the other as he is, or a desire to impose one's own perception and what's good for him upon him. If you love me, love me for who I am, flaws and all. If you love me, don't love my potential. Love who I am, because I am the best that I can be right now, from your perspective. From my perspective, obviously I can improve. Obviously I can become better. But from your perspective, I am the best that I can be. So love me for who I am. So often, women will say, Oh, I see his potential. I see what could be. I see what I could make him. I can make him into a man. Love is about loving the moments, about loving today. So, if I truly love you, and I love you to the point where I care about you, I'm worried about you, do I have the right to rebuke you? It's out of love. I'm not rebuking you because... I, I, I hate you. I'm rebuking you because I love you. Somebody who screams at you is because they care. If they, how do you know? Because if they didn't care, they wouldn't, they wouldn't care. Who cares? If they're admonishing you, if they're bothering you. That's why our moms are so, uh, always play that, that role in our lives. We're like, okay, enough already. Until we realize as we get older that maybe they're right. But there's a big difference. What's there's do's and don'ts to a child. Obviously, don't go near the stove. It's on you, burn your hand. I mean, these are simple things. When you're in a relationship, the minute you rebuke, you're not dealing with the now. You're dealing with what isn't and what should be according to your standards. In other words, that potential in the future. So it's not accepting. Rebuking is not accepting. So rebuking is your perspective on the relationship. Yes. I mean, not certain things that are not what society. is absolute. It's not necessarily what is absolute. It's your perspective on what's absolute. So it's easy for me to see your life because I'm not living your life. But it's hard for me to see your whole life because I'm not with you all the time. I can ask you questions. I can try to understand your whole life. But you don't even understand your whole life. So how am I going to understand your whole life? So anything that I say to you, especially if I'm rebuking you, is going to be perspective, not actual fact. Tonight, what I want to set is the beginning of an understanding of relationships. I've actually touched upon it in one of my classes a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't really go through the whole process, and I like to go through the whole process of where from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood to mature adulthood. And understand the process of relationships as well in that context. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Of course, that's your perspective. <laughs> that is my perspective. Actually, not mine. I, I don't make this stuff up. I'm going to go right to the Bible. It's easier that way. Then don't blame me.
<laughs> Blame the book. Let's talk about the history of humanity. The Torah reveals four figures who personified four different points of reference in the relationship between self and fellow. Each of these individuals was considered the most righteous of his generation. So their lives can be seen to reflect four stages in the spiritual development of humanity, four stages in the movement from an instinctive selfhood toward a complete abdication of self and self-interest in relating to others. Our examination of this process will also shed light on the acceptance and non-acceptance dilemma inherent in the love relationship. The first of these four outstanding individuals was a man by the name of Enoch, a great-great-great-grandson of Adam, who was born in the year 622 from creation, 3139 BCE. By the time, <clears throat> by his time, humanity had abandoned the one God of their fathers and had succumbed to idolatry and pagan perversity. Only Enoch still walked with God. That's how the Torah describes him. He walked with God. This man was holy. He was righteousness. But there was one problem with his righteousness. It was selfish. He was preoccupied only with the refinement and perfection of his own spiritual self. The Midrash even relates that for many years he disassociated himself from his corrupt generation and secluded himself in a cave. Not only did Enoch fail to have a lasting impact on his society, but he was ultimately in danger of being influenced by their corrupt behavior. This is why Enoch died at the tender young age of 365, compared with the 800 and 900 year lifespans of his contemporaries. God took him to himself before his time, as the Torah says, lest the only righteous man of the generation also be lost. Often, we think of spirituality. We think of holiness as something that's not in this world. It's far from this world. Oh, you want to be holy? This is what you do. Go to Mongolia. And there, on the top of the mountain, you will sit and meditate for many of years and you will become holy. That's essentially what Enoch did. He was a Buddhist monk. He believed that holiness is being one with God. But what he failed to realize is that's being an angel. And God doesn't want us to be angels. Maybe our parents do, but not God. God wants us to be here in this world, one with this world, and make this world holy. Don't try to remove yourself from this world to be holy. Holiness is here, in the moment, in the world. So Enoch saw this corruption in the world, and he said, I've had it. I'm not really interested in this whole story. I'm not interested. In, in, in this world. This world is corrupt, but I love God, and I will be one with God. So God said, don't be here, be in heaven. 
I don't need you in this world. If you're not going to make this world a better place, you don't belong here. And took him away from this world early. For such is the relationship of an individual with his environment. There is no sustained equilibrium. Where there is contact, there is a flow in one direction or the other. One either influences his society or is influenced by it. Prototype number two. Several generations later, we encounter another righteous man in a corrupt generation. Noah. Anyone know him? Mm. Built the ark. Jupa. Jupa. <laughs> Noah. In Noah we find the first stirrings of a departure from self to improve and rehabilitate one's fallen fellow. It's the year 1536 from creation, 2225 BCE. God tells Noah that at the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and that he therefore intends to bring a deluge of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh and start anew with Noah and his family. Noah is instructed to build an ark so that they may survive the flood. Our sages relate that Noah worked on the ark's construction, one, a full 120 years. All this time he called out to the generation to mend its ways and avoid catastrophe. However, the Zohar criticizes Noah for the fact that despite his efforts, he did not pray for the salvation of his generation. This implies that ultimately, it did not matter to, Mo to Noah what would become of them. He had truly, had he truly cared, he would have <clears throat> not have sufficed with doing his best to bring them to repent, but would have implored the Almighty to repeal his decree of destruction. Just as one who was personally threatened would never say, well, I did my best to save myself, and leave it at that, but would beseech God to help him. In other words, Noah's involvement with others was limited to his sense of what he ought to do for them, as opposed to a true concern for their well-being. His self had sufficiently broadened to include the imperative to act for the sake of another, recognizing that the lack of a social conscience is a, def is, a, is, is a defect in one's own character. But he fell short of transcending the self to care for others beyond the consideration of his own righteousness. This also explains the curious aspect of Noah's efforts to reach out to his generation. When the flood came, Noah and his family entered the ark alone. Can you imagine? If I told you that you have one job, your job is to go into a corrupt society and find one person who you can bring to righteousness. One person. How long do you have? 120 years. In 120 years, you can't find me one person? Not one person in 120 years. Perhaps public relations was never Noah's strong point. But how are we to explain the fact that in all this time he could not win over a single individual? But in order to influence others, one's motives must be pure. 
In our words of our sages, words that come from the heart enter the heart. Deep down, a person will always sense whether you truly have his interests at heart and you're feeling a need of your own by seeking to change him or if your work to enlighten your fellow stems from a desire to do the right thing, to observe the mitzvot, to love your fellow as yourself and rebuke your fellow. But without really caring about the results, your call will be met with a scant response, the echo of personal personal motive, be it the most laudable of personal motives, will be sensed only if subconsciously by the object of your efforts and will ultimately put them off. I was a yeshiva student. And in the program that I was in, on Fridays, we used to have to go downtown and various businesses and, and meet various Jews and put on tefillin or talk to them. And it, was part of our, it, was, it was part of our program. One day, I was in downtown Chicago, and I set up a little booth on the corner a little Ask the Rabbi booth. There were two Christian missionaries that set up a booth right across the street from us. Competition? Competition here. So at first when I saw it, I'm like, I'm not going to stay around here. I'm not really, like, I'm not interested in fighting with these guys. I'm like, you know, that's not what I'm about. So you know what? I'm going to stay. Why not? Let's just, let's see what happens. Everybody was crossing the street from them and coming to us. So after a while, this happened for two hours. This one young man walks over to me. He's like, what are you giving out? Why is everybody coming to you? So I said, I'll tell you why they're coming to me and they're not coming to you. Because I'm here for them and you're here for yourself. People know the truth. You ever, somebody calls you up with it on a business call or, or comes to your office or your home and they're trying to sell you something or even sees you in the street trying to sell you something. The best salespeople are people who generally care about other people. Because what they're selling is not trying to sell you their product, they're selling you something that you need in their perspective. It's a bad example. But even in a better example, the most important place to be is to be in a place where you can genuinely care about people. Not because, I don't know what, you decided Not because you decided that it was a good idea, but because that person is very much part of you. And you can see that that person will benefit from what you're going to say, but not just benefit from what you're going to say, that you will be able to make a positive impact on the individual, having nothing to do with yourself, out of yourself, having nothing to do, has nothing to do with me. Noah failed. 
he failed because his family, family is an extension of ourselves. It's not outside of ourselves. It's part, it's one with us. So Enoch, he was completely selfish. Noah was a little less selfish because Noah cared about his family. But family is also selfish because family is part of us. Now we're going to go to the third prototype. Ten generations later, after Noah, was born an individual who raised the concept of man's devotion to the welfare of his neighbor. The new selfless heights. This was Abraham, the first Jew. You see, Abraham lived in a corrupt society. Abraham understood that his society was corrupt. And he went out in pursuit of the people. He found the one God, and then he went to tell the world about it. But to the point where even he tried to save the corrupt city of Saddam and Gomorrah, he really cared about others, selfless, really had a passion. And because people sensed that he had their own good, and only their own good at heart, they responded. When Abraham and Sarah left Haran to the Holy Land, they were joined by the souls which they had made in Haran, the community of men and women who had rallied to their cause. Sixty-five years later, he was able to say to a servant of Eliezer, when God summons me from the house of my father, he was God of the heavens, but not of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth did not recognize him, and his name was not referred to in the land. But now I have made his name familiar in the mouths of the creatures. He is God in both heaven and earth. This is what Abraham did. He created monotheism. Without Abraham, majority of the world today follows in the ways of Abraham. 3,000 years ago, nobody did this. So he did a good job. He did a great job. He is master of sales. The whole world, most of the world today, believes in the ways of Abraham. It's powerful, powerful picture of who he is, a testament to Abraham. But even Abraham's love is still not the ultimate. It took another four centuries for the epitome of selfless devotion to one's fellow to emerge. You see, the problem with Abraham is that even he was, though he was completely selfless, he had a mission. His mission was monotheism. So let's go back. Enoch is selfish. Noah is about his family. Abraham is the missionary. All he cares about is spreading God. So to the point where somebody would come to Abraham's tent, set up a tent, an oasis in the middle of the desert, people would come from all around. Could you imagine? You're traveling in the hot desert sun, and there you see, it's like a mirage. There's food, there's a home, and he lets you in, wash your hands and feet, let me give you some food, let me give you some food and some nice drink. 
I'll give you a nice bed, somewhere to stay. Takes care of you for a couple of days. You're ready to leave? So you say, uh, sir, how much do I owe you? Nothing. Just bless my God. That's it. That's it? But I don't want to bless your God. I have my own gods. Oh, you have your own gods? Perfect. Tell the gods I need a million dollars. So you're telling me, bless your God or give, me a mil- or give you a million dollars? Yeah, blackmail. And that is how he did it. And he almost forced to coerce people to go in his way. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I mean, it's selfless because he was doing it for the people. And he was doing it for a higher purpose. But he was doing it with a very specific mission. Not completely selfless. Then we have Moses. Moses, I'm just going to skip around a bit. Moses' love was unconditional. God said to Moses, go to Egypt and take the Jews out. And what did Moses say? Pick somebody else. I don't want to. It's not for me. I've got a lisp. I can't talk. Pharaoh won't understand me. No problem. God says, take your brother Aaron. He'll speak for you. No, come on. Pick somebody else. Really? But God said, you're the chosen one. Pick somebody else. I can't handle it. Finally, when God says go, he says fine. And here's the kicker. He says, I'll go, but I want to tell you something. I'll do the job, but anybody else can do a better job than me. But I'll do it. I think that in our, in our place, in our, in our world, in our society, we've gotten so used to the idea that Selfless means doormat. That selfless means, oh, well, I'm humble. You know, I'm humble. I'm too humble to do that. I'm too humble to, to, to no, no, that, that's for somebody who's not humble. But I'm too humble. Oh, me? Go speak in front of the big crowd? Oh, no, no. I'm very humble. I don't speak in front of crowds. That's false humility. That's not humility. That's because you're afraid of speaking. They say the number one fear, number two fear in the United States is? Death. Number one fear is public speaking, which means, in simple, at the funeral, most people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Okay, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Off color. So, I was, it's, but, but even if, oh, I'm too humble to help that person. I'm, I'm, I'm too humble to, to get involved with that. It's very interesting. Kabbalah says that if you see it, it was meant for you to see it. If you see it, it's because there's something you can do about it. Because it could be there were a thousand other people in the same room and didn't see it. If you notice something about someone, it's because you 
have in your power the ability to do something about it. Humility is doing the job because everything is about getting the job done but always knowing that anybody else can do it better. Not being a doormat. We must constantly do. Constantly. But remember that we are not the center of the universe. We do our job faithfully. But anybody else could do better. Doesn't mean, oh, see, so someone can become complacent. So, because anybody else can do better than me. Why do I have to even perfect my job or become better at my job? Because anybody else can do it better. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is humility is doing it, doing it the best you possibly can and constantly improving, but remembering that you're not the center of the universe, that someone else could do it better than you. It's hard because... In the process of becoming an adult, we have to be selfish. So let me give you the next sequence here. Enoch, who is he? Selfish or selfless? Selfish. He's a toddler. He's an infant. He needs God. God, take care of me. Help me. Be with me. One with me. Like a toddler cannot do anything without the parent. An infant can't do anything without the parent. Noah? Selfish. Selfish, but not exactly. Like a teenager. Like an adolescent. I need my peeps. Abraham is the young adult on a mission. Idealistic, excited, focused. And Moses is the mature adult. It could be that someone who's an adult in years is still a child with regards to how they've developed. In life, one of the most powerful values that the Torah has ever given us there are hundreds of values the Torah has given us. The Judeo-Christian value system, that's our system. That's what we use even here in Canada. But one of the most powerful values is selfish versus selfless. If you want to know whether something you're doing is right or wrong, think, am I doing it from a selfish perspective or from a selfless perspective? And then you'll know if it's right or wrong. If you're having trouble making a decision, maybe you're just making it from the wrong perspective. It can be the same exact deed, but is it selfish or is it selfless? Relationships are selfless. It doesn't mean I'm a doormat. It means the following. I am here for you. And you are here for me. But I don't know that. Because I'm only in control of myself. But I'm here for you. Completely one with you. Completely here for you. I'm not here 
to try to see what I can get out of you, what I can get from you. My needs, it's my life, it's all about me. What am I going to do? What are you going to do for me? What am I going to get out of it? What do you mean? I'm getting nothing out of it? Why should I be here? Oh, you wanted something from me? Really? But it's all about me and my problems. You're supposed to be here for me. And I say, you're supposed to be here for me. You say, you're supposed to be here for me. And we're constantly fighting. Relationships is about becoming one. Becoming one is done the following way. When you do for me and I do for you, we become one. And whatever I do for you is so much better than what you could do for yourself. And when you do for me, it's so much better than what I can do for myself. So when we both do for each other and our relationship becomes one, then whatever we thought we can do for ourselves, we can do for the other. And our life becomes more meaningful as it's shared. Not that we bring each other down, but we lift each other up. We do for each other so that we can lift each other up, so that we can become one. Here's the problem. Oh, yeah. You can fight me in a second. Most people love another the way they want to be loved instead of where the other wants to be loved. Selfish. So, for example, if I like gifts, I like gifts. I like people who buy me little tchotchkes. Right? I'm just saying, I don't, but let's just say I did. There are people who like it. They like the gifts. Oh, you bought me something that's so nice, that's so sweet. I'm probably going to love my spouse that way. That's the way it looks. But my spouse may not care anything about gifts. Probably they like uh, when I say I love you. So, she's constantly saying I love you. I'm constantly buying her gifts. What's happening? We're both a headache for each other. Now what happens if I said I love you and she bought me gifts? Exact opposite. We'll both be so happy. But we're so busy, focused on ourselves, that we don't realize that we're literally, all the work and effort we're putting into our relationship is so self-motivated. That all we have to do is step out of ourselves for two seconds, step into the other for a minute, and realize that all we've got to do is switch the story around. I'm going to make your life easy tonight. There are only five ways that people want to be loved. Now, you can't tell me that you like to be loved all five. That's not fair. But you will like, if you look at this list that I've laid out for you tonight, you'll see that you're going to like one a lot and another one a little bit. And that is what we're going to call tonight your love language. That's how you like to be loved. And I think that so often we don't realize that it's that simple in a relationship, is realizing what is the other's love language. So, number one. Yes. Totally selfless. Yes. And doing for the other. Yes. There 
can't be any room for a review because it's unimportant at that point. Not necessarily. Because sometimes we're so selfless that we're selfish. Okay. <laughs> you asked for it, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay. So, number one. Words of affirmation. Actions don't always speak louder than words. If this is your love language, unsolicited compliments mean the world to you. Hearing the words, I love you, are important. Hearing the reasons behind that love sends your spirit skyward. Insults can leave you shattered and are not easily forgotten. People who their love language is words of affirmation, they like words. They like poetry and, and love letters and little notes and they like, and then they also hold on to every word they hear in their relationship. It's very important if you're like that. You need to tell your partner, this is how I am. Number two, quality time. In the vernacular of quality time, nothing says I love you like full, undivided attention. Being there for this type of person is critical, but being there, no TV, no fork and knife, chores, tasks, cell phones, anything that will not be quality time, which means quality time is not going out to a movie. Quality time is not going shopping together. Quality time is being there, sitting across from each other and staring into each other's eyes. That's quality time. Focused on one another. <clears throat> Distractions, postponed dates, or failure to listen can be especially hurtful. So if you say to somebody, your, let's say your partner, I want to be there. I will be there at 10 o'clock. And you're not there? For somebody whose love language is quality time, that would be the worst. You are destroying their sense of love by not being there. So not only are you not loving them, you're hurting them because that is how they see love. Number three, receiving gifts. Don't mistake this love for materialism. The receiver of gifts thrives on love. Thoughtfulness and effort behind the gift if you speak this language, the perfect gift or gesture shows that you are known, you are cared for, and you are prized above whatever was sacrificed to bring the gift to you. A missed birthday, anniversary, or hasty, thoughtless gift would be disastrous. It's a lot about the, the feeling, the, what, what, did it, what did it take? Was it just a, a gift, or was it something that really was meaningful? People who like gifts, that's their love language. That is, the gift means, is not just the way they want to be loved. It is who they are. The gift means everything. Does it mean that you have to go buy a car every single day? No, but something. And it's a hard, it's, it's hard on a budget to have that love language for someone every single day. But if that's their language, you've got to figure it out. And something, sometimes you've got to be creative with the gifts. Acts of service. Number four, can vacuuming the floors really be an expression of love? 
Anything you do to ease the burden of responsibilities weighing on an act of service will speak volumes. The words he or she most want to hear is, let me do that for you. Laziness and broken commitments and making more work for them tell speakers of this language that your feelings don't matter. And then the last, the fifth one, is physical touch. It's not only about the bedroom. The person whose primary language is physical touch is not surprisingly very touchy. Hugs, pats on the back, holding hands, and thoughtful touches on the arm, shoulder or face, can all be ways to show excitement, concern, and care, and love. Physical presence and accessibility are crucial, while neglect or abuse can be unforgivable and destructive. So it's not, it's not only about the fact that they want to be loved this way. It's also abuse will be much, will be taken to greater extent by someone whose love language is physical touch than by somebody whose love language is gifts. Not being there on time, when you say you'll be home for dinner at 7, and not being there on time will be such an issue for someone whose love language is quality time but may not be a big, a big issue for somebody whose love language is gifts. So there's the positive and the negative to each of the five. Yes? Well, I know you said before you can't be all in five. What if you actually look at it and, okay, maybe one or two are lower on the chain, but like a good two or three are high, high up there? You're going to, if you really, I mean, I don't want to go through the process right now of how you can figure out your love language, but there's actually, you have to go through and figure out some are nice, but there's going to be one that's going to be, this is just, it, it, it makes me tick. What else? But they're not mutually exclusive. There has to be some over there. There is a A little bit. There's one, and then there's a half. The other ones are nice. Like, for example, for me, gifts are nice, but, okay, it's nice. It's not, not, nobody would turn down a gift. It's a very nice thing to give somebody a gift. But there are some people who gifts are their life, their world, and you know them because they're the ones who are always gifting. The people who are always gifting, they always remember everyone's birthdays and they're there right away. Those are people you know. This is their life. Gift, <laughs> gifts are really important. But you can be giving with words or giving with time or you can be generous in another way, not just by giving presents. Yeah, but there's some people who that's what they want presents. Time is different than presents. Writing a little note <clears throat> doesn't cost you anything and it means the world. But that's that's words of affirmation. It's not gifts. Okay. It's a big difference between words of affirmation and gifts. And it's, it's easy to get to think that uh, a little love letter is a gift. It's not a gift. It's, a word, it's words of affirmation. And people who, who their love language is gifts will not be satisfied with a, with a little letter. And the problem is that the only way we know how to, be, how to love is the way that we love. So to be able to be so selfless, to step out of our own love language, to love someone else, well, that's a powerful experience. That's what we call tonight the Moses experience. 
to realize that it's not about me. Because if it was about me, I would never go to Pharaoh. I, but I'll go. Not because I'm going to show that I'm Moses, but because I was asked to do the job. And I will do it. I will do it to the best of my abilities. But I'll always remember that there's many people out there that can do better. But I will do my job, my task, and my purpose in this world the best I can. It may not be the best the world can handle, but it's the best that I can do. Yes? Aren't you putting yourself down on you when you say someone else can do better? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're not putting yourself down. You're not turning yourself into a doormat. You're, you're, you're putting yourself in your place. Your place is get the job done because being in this world of Asiya, in the world of action, is all about doing. If we don't do it, if we talk and talk and think and have ideas and, and speculate, it's great. But if we never did it, nothing happens. So our thoughts and our words need to lead to action. And if we're constantly thinking and feeling and trying to experience and trying to get enlightenment, we miss the point. The point is to do. Now, now that we're doing, we want to make sure that we're doing it properly. And properly means to know our place. Our place is, it's the best I can do, but not the best the world can do. Others can do better. But I'm still going to do it, because someone's got to do it. Is it, is it? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So somebody else could love your wife better than you then? No. <laughs> not the best, not that someone else, the world, in the world, my wife is more valuable than what I can do for her. I respect, honor, and love her more than anything that I can do for her. But I will do the best I can to respect, honor, and love her. That's, that's the difference. She is worth more. There's nothing that I can do that will ever satisfy me with regards to what I do for her. But I have to do, and I'll try my best, but I know it's never going to be enough. <clears throat> yes? Yeah. Uh, going back to Abraham. Yes. Um, the selflessness part, like if he, if he knows that someone is better, then why not find that someone and uh, him do the job and don't take any credit? Well, that was what Abraham failed to do. Because Abraham lived in a time that was completely corrupt. And Abraham needed to set the tone for all the generations to come. But there's one God, monotheism is real. And it was very difficult. His whole life, if you know anything about Abraham's life, it was a very difficult life. His own father was an idol seller. He sold idols. And when Abraham comes home, and he says to his father that there's a one God. So he said, well, I'm going to go out of business if you start spreading around these rumors. He was really worried. His own father sent him away into a cave and then turned him over to the king, Nimrod of the time, to get him killed. And the king threw him into a fire 
And he survived. And his entire story was a, a miraculous story. I don't want to go into all of it. But today, majority of the world follows his ways. The three great religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, are all based on the values that Abraham set forth. So I think that Abraham was selfless in his time, as he was the greatest person of his time. But in our time, we, if we look at him as a prototype for the way we need to live, we see a missionary. We see someone who is more concerned about God than about people. Now, you're going to say to me, but isn't God the most important? Yes. But in the Torah, the Ten Commandments, there are five commandments that are about us and God, and five commandments that are about us and others. And the, the right way is to be balanced between God and others. We can't see ourselves as the quintessential person, and everything else is beneath us. We have to realize that we are an integral part of this society, an integral part of this world, and we, through our actions, we make the world a better place. Not we're going to stand by as observers of humanity, but actually, through our actions, we make this world a better place. Anything else? So Moshe mm -hmm. did the ultimate rebuke, which is when he told God that even the people who were worshiping the golden calf, he argued for he argued for these people, and almost like telling God, um, maybe you could be fairer, more just. I mean, he's saying that. God. Thank you for talking. Thank you for this. It's one of the ultimate reviews. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? He he didn't do it. It wasn't his fault. Actually, the golden calf was against him. And he goes to God and he says, If you don't forgive them, take me out of your Torah. To this day, there's one portion of the Torah that does not have Moses' name. In the middle of the story of Moses, there's one portion that doesn't have his name in memory of the time that Moses said to God, take me out of your Torah. It was against him. Imagine somebody wrongs you. No, not somebody. Imagine the whole city of Montreal did something against you. And you go to the prime minister. It's a bad example, but it's the best I can give. And you say, don't worry about it. Not only don't worry about it, if you do anything to them, take me out of the city. Unbelievable. How can someone have the courage? But he becomes the greatest leader that ever existed. Because that's true leadership. True leadership is realizing that it's not about me. It's about the purpose. Let's talk about blame for a second. That something happens a lot in relationships. Blame. You did something wrong. It's your fault. How could you do that? So, okay, so it's your fault. Now what? Blame is the most meaningless thing that we can do. You broke that dish. Okay, now what? It's broken. 99 cents later. Is it really worth it? Is it worth it? 
It doesn't matter whose fault, the Torah says. It doesn't matter whose fault. Even if it's not your fault, it's still your fault. Because the fact that you were there and you were part of it, you're not a passive bystander in your life. You're an active part of your life. If it happened to you, there's a reason, deal with it. This is your life. This is your story. You're going to get all upset and, and, and tied into a bundle because something happened. It happened. Be there for the other. Be there for the experience. That is the, that's, that's the joy. Because when you can rise above the moment and realize that there's more important things to worry about, that is a godly experience. That's almost playing God. Because only God can rise above the moment. By nature, we are in the moment. But to be within the moment, but stay above it, that's the most powerful experience that we can have. Because it's like, it's like being a deer in the headlights, but watching the deer in the headlights at the same time. So we see ourselves, we're in our bodies, but we're above the whole situation. In Kabbalah, there's a process of how to get there. It's called hiskafia and hisabcha. It goes like this. Something happens, take a step back. Take yourself out of the situation. Because when you're there, a gambling addict can't stop gambling in the, in the casino. Don't worry, I'm just going to the casino to hang out. If you want to stop drinking, get out of the liquor store. If you want to stop gambling, get out of the casino. The first step is get out. If you want to stop eating junk, stop eating junk. But there's one part that's missing from every diet book. Because most diets are very good at telling you to stop. But what happens after you finish stopping? You go back on the binge, non-stop, until you gain all the weight back plus five pounds. But the Kabbalah diet, don't steal this one from me, okay? I figure the bestseller list is Kabbalah books and diet books. Let's put them together. The Kabbalah diet says like this. <laughs> the following. If you're going to take a step back, that's the first step. You want to you lose weight? Stop eating junk. But then replace it with something good. Transform. Replace it with a new idea. Replace your thought with a new thought. Replace that food with a new food. A healthy food. You can't just take the foods out. You must replace it with something of equal value. And that's how we make changes. So you, get, you generally, when something breaks in the floor, you get angry. So start practicing now. Take a step back. I'm not getting angry yet. Look at it, analyze. Is it worth it? Yes, no? By that point, the five seconds that just passed, it's enough for you to be able to take control of the situation. That's it. That's all Kabbalah is asking us. Practical application. Yes. 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 It's obviously nonsense. Yes. Temperature. Tempers and motions are flaring up. Take a step back. Yeah, you're not going to remove yourself from the situation. Yes, why not? That'll solve nothing. Well, hold on a second. Get in the car and drive around the block? No. What if you just said, give me five seconds? Let me think. That's it. That's all it takes is five seconds. Step out of it. Mm -hmm. You can be, I can, you can be right in front. 
You want to try it? Go, come on. Go for it. Come on, come on, come on. You want to fight? You want to fight with me? Come on, come on, come on. Okay, we're going to role play here? Yes, we are. Okay, give me a situation. Uh, there was $10 on that table, you took that $10. That was mine. Hold on a second. Just give me a second. Okay, I hear you. And? Probably I wouldn't be smiling so much. You see? <laughs> All it takes is five seconds. Yeah. That's it. It's very disarming. It, 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 it puts us back into focus. You see, what happens a lot in spousal fighting is if you're in a relationship with somebody for a year, you learn all of their weakest points. It's just a reality. You, you get to know somebody, you learn their weakest points. So you're in a fight, and somehow we have a great way of sticking in those, those sore spots. All the time, we're constantly sticking in the weakest points. That's not fair fight. If you're fighting, stay on subject. If we're fighting about the money box, fight about the money box. Don't start saying, oh, but you know what you did yesterday and two days ago, and you always do that. You all... That's not what this fight is about. Let's stick to the point. Stick to the money box. And it's really easy to push the buttons in the wrong way, and then the fight goes out of control. And all it was is about one little simple thing. Well, so, what if it's, it's repeated behavior? Like, you know, then, then it was never resolved. So the fight had, so the, the, we have to argue, quarrel, but then we have to actually resolve it, come to an understanding. It, it, there's a real fight. And you know what's amazing about relationships? People are always scared. Oh, we're fighting, our relationship's over. Actually, fighting, healthy fighting is the best thing for a relationship because it creates separation and then closeness. And that's what we're constantly trying to do in a relationship. We separate and then we get closer. Separate close. And what part, part of what fighting does is create that. But no one taught us how to resolve. Resolving is actually coming to an understanding. That this is the way it is. The ultimate example again was Moshe. I mean, what was he going to do? He's not going to argue and step back from I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people. He had to let go completely, of even the tiniest iota of ego, in order to be able to do this and not think of himself. Nothing. Nothing. A good leader cannot be. A good leader needs to be transparent in every way. I, what do I exist? I'm here for the people. And there can't be ego in a relationship under. How can you have ego in the relationship? Who are you? If you are you, then your relationship doesn't exist. It's we. I and I make we. And if we don't have I, we turn it upside down, it makes me. We, that's a video game. Yeah, that's right. Our, our society is all I-centered. What's the only letter in the English alphabet that's always capitalized? I. Always. You imagine there's a letter that's a word. I. It's a word. It's one letter, but it's a word. When I look at an English book, all I see is the eyes. Our society 
pops it out. It's constantly telling us anything. iPad, iPod, I this, I that, I that. I need this, I want this, I, I, I. What is I need, I want, I, me, you, who, you? No. Me, 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 me. Oh, I need, get, oh, I, I need to get into a relationship. I need to get into a relationship. I'm desperate for a relationship. I, I, I. That's not a relationship. I always say, one day it's going to happen. I'm going to hear about it. If you hear about it, let me know. Okay? I know it's going to happen one day. You're going to hear about someone who got married to themselves. <laughs> Had the ceremony and everything. <laughs> I do? I do. Perfect. Just like that. How do you carry yourself to open the church? We need to, to be in a healthy, successful relationship. We got to get out of ourselves. It's not about me. If it's about me, nothing's going to happen. It's got to be about you. Oh, but I'm scared. That makes me vulnerable. That makes me in a situation that I can't control. Because maybe you're going to do something that I don't like. Well, I want to be in control. You're telling me I can't be in control? I can't be in control? I can't be part of this. And I can't handle this. And I don't want to be here. Well, then you know what you have to do? One simple solution. Take the eye and throw it in the garbage. And then, I won't be here, and I won't be able to handle it, and I won't be able to do anything, because I's gone, and now we can be we. Most fights happen because of the eye. There's very few fights that I've ever heard of or seen that weren't eye-centered. So now we know the focus. The focus is to try to find the center of gravity. The center of gravity is not me. It's us in the middle. That's the center of gravity. I want to go through five more types of love. Not languages, but relationships. Five different relationships. The first one is the parent-child relationship. I call it, I love you like I love life itself. You are my life. I will do anything for you because you are part of me. The child, my child, is one with me, is part of my being. So, like I love myself, I love you. So, I love you like life itself. Number two is the child-parent relationship. More than life. It's interesting. A lot of people have asked me. The fifth commandment. Remind me. Anyone? Fifth commandment. Honor what? Why is there no commandment honor, honor thy children? They'll choose your nursing home? No. <laughs> Why is there 
bad joke. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, I stole your line. <laughs> Why is there no commandment to honor thy children? There are parents who do terrible things to their children. The reason why is because the parent-child love is natural. The child-parent love is not natural. It's not normal for a child to love their parents. By nature, the child should actually want to separate from the parent in order to make themselves alive. That's the nature. So because of that, if a child loves their parents and respects and honors their parents, it's more than life. Because naturally, they shouldn't. So the commandment to honor thy parents is higher than life itself. Number three. Don't parents naturally love their children? Parents love their children. The child naturally will not love their, their parents. Reciprocal reflective love is number three. If someone loves you, you're automatically attracted to them. You don't even have to know they love you. You just feel it. You don't do anything to earn the love. The more undeserving you are, the more you'll love back. It's reciprocal. Number four is love like a hidden treasure. Like a person who will leave everything in search of a treasure that may or may not have ever seen, like a gold digger. Even if I didn't have you, I would come looking for you. And then five is love like pleasure. So entranced with the pleasure, it takes over everything else, almost like death. Sensation of rising and losing gravity. A spousal relationship. Must be which one? The last one. What's the problem with the spousal relationship that's reciprocal and reflective? Well, it's quick pro quo. It's reactive. Yeah. It's reactive. I love you, you love me, it's wonderful, it's great, it's great. No, no, it's not great. We don't love each other. Well no, bye bye. Instant oatmeal. Easy come, easy go. Just microwave it. Just add water. It's that easy. We live in this world. Everything is instant. Instant love. Just add love. Now there's no love. Okay, we're not in love. Are you in love? No, we're seeing each other. Oh, I see you also. Oh, no one ever dates anymore. We're just seeing each other. So now I'm seeing the whole world. I see you. Now good. Now we're seeing each other. Today I see you, tomorrow I don't. Okay, fine. If I don't see you, we're not seeing each other. <laughs> we lost the boundaries. We lost it all. So because of that, we don't know where, where to put ourselves. So what is the relationship supposed to look like? Well, what do you mean? You do for me, I do for you. That's it. That's what we're in. Oh, really? Tit for that relationship. So meaningless. Now, the other problem is the love like a hidden treasure. Well, I have people who have come to me with lists 
that go 50, 60 pages. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but they go a good pages, five or six pages. And they're looking for someone. There's no way that person will ever exist. Ever. There's no way you'll ever find that person. You can't look for a person off a list. You need to make a list off a person. You can't go look for the hidden treasure. I know she's out there somewhere. I will go look for you, like the gold rush. Maybe gold there, maybe gold not, but you'll spend your life in search, missing the beauty and the joy of life, in search for your hidden treasure. We need to realize that it doesn't have to be like the movies. The problem with the movies is that every relationship in the movies is two hours long. <laughs> the beginning, the middle, and the end of the relationship was 72 minutes. That's it. So if you want a two-hour relationship, watch the movies. Because that is the best way to get a relationship that lasts two hours. So often, people don't know what set somebody up. They're like, okay, what do I do now? I like her. Go out, hang out, see each other. <laughs> we don't know because our society set us up for just getting there, getting to the first date. No one ever taught us what to do afterwards. But what happens is love like pleasure. is the love that takes you over. Why does it take you over? It takes you over because it's selfless. It exists on a plane of its own, not irregardless of you and I. It exists on its own. It's the third, the third dynamic, the third piece. It's interesting. Where's my wife? In the in the in the in the Sefirot, in the in Kabbalah, the first three, the right side is loving kindness. What's the left side? Gevura. What's Gevura? Uh, restriction. Restriction. Uh, restrictive. Severity. Severity. And what's the middle? Uh, compassion. No. Compassion. Compassion. Beauty. The relationship is the beauty, is the compassion. But what it takes is two very important ingredients. Loving kindness, and then the opposite, which is the stop of loving kindness. Gavura is not this, what people think is severity. Severity sounds very severe. It's the stop. If it's all loving kindness, then there's no loving kindness. If there's no boundaries, then there's nothing. So if we're constantly kind, oh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so generous, I give, I give, I give, I give, then you didn't give. Gavura is the stop of loving kindness. That's when loving kindness stops. You say, okay, enough, done. That's the two ingredients to create compassion. And compassion is a relationship. What's so valuable about compassion that it needs to be the quintessential relationship? Because compassion is more than love. What is it? It's acceptance and, dare I say, tolerance. 
Tolerance, more than tolerance, more than acceptance. Um, connection. Huh? Connection. connection. What else? Care for the other. Selfless. 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 Selfless for the other. Compassion is not, oh, I'll be tolerant of you. I hate you, really, but I will tolerate your existence because I'm nice. And nice people tolerate other people. And because the sixth commandment is do not kill. <laughs> Compassion is I genuinely care about you. You are everything. I will do anything for you. Loving kindness and the stop of it, obviously. But I'll do anything for you. Because I am compassionate and caring and kind and generous. Whatever I need to do for you, I will do for you. Now what happens, while we're on the subject, if I am compassionate towards you, but you're a selfish pig? What happens then? It's not a relationship. It's not a relationship. If you are kind and generous to someone, and all they do is know how to bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak, in, in, in the terminology of today, then there's something wrong. That's not a relationship. There's a name for it. It's called? The name is psychology. Dependence. Co-dependency. The exact opposite of a healthy relationship is a codependent relationship. Where people feel like, but he needs me. What is he going to do without me? What is she going to do without me? That's codependent. But, 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 but where am I going to go? What's going to happen? That's not healthy. That's the exact opposite of a healthy relationship. But Rabbi, in your Moses example, though, it's also sometimes very much a one-way relationship. Like between people, they're not so thankful, they're not so... So that's why I want to... I'm using him as an example for personal selflessness, right. not for the relationship. We've now gone beyond the four prototypes, and now we're going into the relationship. So now if we're both Moses in the relationship... We both are being Moses. We're both selfless at that point. If we're both being Enoch, we're codependent. Well, maybe we're both being Noah. We're, we're codependent. Because all I care about is, you know, saving myself. I want to save myself from the disaster of the world. But if we're both being Moses, then what's my goal? My goal is I will fight for you. Even if it's not my fault, even if I wasn't there, I will fight for you. Why? Because you are the most important entity in my life. I don't even, I may not even really understand why you are. But you are, to the point where I'll do anything. Not in a codependent way, but in a real way. Because this relationship is not an instant relationship. Now, often, we think that we're trying to get the 20-year relationship in two days. 
That's what happens in the movies. You can have 20 years in two days. Well, in two hours. Even better. We can get 20 years in two hours. What we don't realize is things that last take time. What's the most important ingredient in a relationship? Trust. We've been to a few classes. Trust. Trust doesn't happen overnight. Trust takes years to build up. And that's what it is. If, if we have that trust, everything works out. And it doesn't happen overnight. And every time we lose a little bit of trust for another, then we, we have to regain that trust. And we're, if we're constantly losing trust, then we're, we're separating in a way. So we have to work like Moses to regain the trust. Gavura. When do you put? When do you do Gavura? Why would you? If you're both Moshe in a relationship and you're both selfless. Well, Moshe had Gavura also. You say when did Moshe? Moshe give me an example of Moses. The Moses severity. Korach. Huh? Korach. This week's Torah portion. Korach. What happened? Does anyone know the story of Korach? Go for it. No, no, please, please. I've been talking the whole night. Does anyone know the story of Korach? Moses' first cousin comes and says, it's not fair. It's a family business. You're giving all the honor to your brother and to your sister. What about me? I'm related to you. We're the same grandpa. I want something. What, you're just going to... It's not like I'm a distant relative. I'm your first cousin. And he gets a lot of people behind him. A lot of people. They rally with him, trying to uproot this Moses. This is the same Moses that worked. He's... He's non-stop. This guy is not stopped to the point where his father-in-law comes and sees what's going on. And he's so busy. He's like, okay, you've got to have some people here. You've got to get some hierarchy here. You've got to delegate and, and get the, the leaders of the 10 and the leaders, the leaders of the 50 and the 100. And the, you, know, you can't do this anymore. You're doing it all yourself. The same Moses comes along with Korach and says, enough. Anyone know what happened? What did Moses do? Did Moses say... Don't worry, go for sure, fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know what? You take it over. What happened? What happened? Get up, please. <laughs> he didn't write much. What? He didn't write much. What did he do? He wrote a judgment right away. And it happened instantly. This Moses, the kind. Gentle, sweet, caring, loving Moses. Come along, Korach. That's it. God, tell us what to do right now. And the earth swallows up, swallows up Korach and his people. Why? How, 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 do you, how do you justify that? What's the lesson? For the good of the society, for the good of the majority? Selfless or selfish? Look at 
look at the motive. Everything can be done in a selfish way or a selfless way. Moses constantly reminds us, you can even ask for judgment, for severity, but do it in a selfless way. He knew right away what's going to happen. Because Korach, in a way, in his construed head, misconstrued head, he was right, but he was wrong at the same time. So for the sake of the people, Moses wanted judgment. The people need leaders. One of the problems with our generation is that we're a leaderless generation. We don't have strong leadership. In past generations, there's been strong leadership. Today, it's very weak leadership. And because of that, we crave leadership. We crave a solid leader. We've tried time and again to elect a solid leader. Come on, we have Justin Trudeau. We've tried. But we, we, we lack true leadership. And Moses realized that if you're going to threaten the leadership, you're threatening the people, not himself. If it was about Korach, his first cousin, and first cousin's battle, he would have gone into the tent and battled it out. But it wasn't. He gathered the people with him. So Moses saw the people are going to lose the leadership, respect for the leaders. A number of years ago, I was doing a, a thesis. And I did it in religiosity conflict in Orthodox teens, in Orthodox Jewish teens. Teens that were raised religious and went off from the path of their parents. At the time, it wasn't as prevalent as it is today, but it's quite, quite well known. Uh, and it's a, quite, a, quite an issue in the Orthodox world today. So we did, um, at the time, 670-something case studies of at-risk teens. And we were trying to find the common ingredient, the formula, so to speak, of what will cause this team to go off. And we realized that obviously, though every child is different and every child had a different reason, there were a couple common things that kept on coming back into the studies. So we put together the top 10 list of the top 10 things that cause a child to go off from the path of their parents. And it actually, not only religiosity, we find it also to be in other uh, uh, realms of society. Take a guess. What was it? Number one. Abuse. Abuse, number seven. Lack of trust. Lack of trust, also, uh, not even number 10. Not, not in the top 10. Hypo hypocrisy, which means the parents saying something and doing the opposite, was number three. Huh. Why do you think number one? It was shocking. Now, I'll tell you what it is. The, it's not, don't get this wrong. Don't take this out of context. It's not the number one reason. It's the one that was much more than others. So let's say hypocrisy was like at 19%. This particular number one was at like 48 or 49%. Very high compared to even the, the, the few right under it. Number one reason was parents speaking negative about rabbis and teachers at home when the child is young. Wow. Children see black and white. No gray area. You say the rabbi's bad, Judaism's bad. And automatically it gives them, if they had a precondition 
or a reason, other reasons to go off, it gave them that ability. And the kids that went off at 16 went off at 6 when they were hearing all the things that they, you know, the parents were coming up, that rabbi, that, that one. Leadership. Leadership is the most important thing in raising a child. The child needs to know who the parent is, who the rabbi is. And if you look at the Sephardic community, one of the things that, that is so amazing about the Sephardic community is that they teach their children the rabbi is the rabbi. The leader is the leader. And this is what Moses was trying to tell the people in this week's Torah portion. The leader is the leader. It could be wrong. Human beings are human beings. We're not perfect. You can't, even if you're Moses, you cannot be perfect. You're a human being after all. But still, this is the person that's been entrusted to lead the people. I hope that uh, tonight was informative. may not be as uh, inspiring as the usual, but I wanted to try to get uh, some ideas across. And uh, for next week, we're going to try to uh, continue on this theme of relationships, but go one step further and I'm going to go possibly into the Kabbalah of Mars and Venus.